Lord, we plan all kinds of things, but we submit all those plans to you and ask you to overrule and to support as it pleases your purposes in our lives. And we commit our time now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Ruth 3. We started Ruth 3 last week. But you remember briefly bringing us up to speed. Ruth, days of the judges, dark days. We've got this bright, shining little gem of a story during the dark days of the judges. And you remember our two ladies are widowed in Moab and they've come back and by chance, as it were, Ruth has ended up gleaning in the field of Moab, one of Naomi's relatives. And Boaz, the relative, has shown great kindness and provision in meeting their needs. And Naomi got a great idea to match Boaz to Ruth and had legal recourse in doing so. The law provided for this. And that's where we're at this morning. If you remember the beginning of chapter 3, Naomi hatches the plan. And she tells Ruth what to do. And we talked about Ruth's response was, all that you say, I will do. We spoke yesterday morning in a planning meeting about two things. This is an aside. This is just for what it's worth, Teresa. That God is sovereign. You remember we talked about, I think it was in chapter 1, Ruth just happened into the field, you remember? And we talked about with God there's no accidents. So that he's sovereign and he always accomplishes his will or his purposes on one hand. That's true. On the other hand, he chooses to use folks like you and I. And in chapter 3, Naomi, as far as the story goes, Naomi hatches the plan. And then she exercised shrewdness and wisdom in how to present Ruth to Boaz and how to get this ball rolling. So we look at the story on one hand and say God is sovereignly at work to bring about his purposes. But on the other hand, we see that Naomi is part of God's equation. And that sometimes while we entrust ourselves to God's sovereignty, we've got our part to play in what he's bringing to pass. So we're starting this morning in chapter 3. We're at verse 6. Ruth has gotten all cleaned up, spruced up, smells good, best clothes. And now, verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he's happy it's harvest. This does not imply that he's drunk, by the way. His heart was merry. He's content and happy during the harvest time. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled. He bent forward and shazam. A woman was lying at his feet. Surprise. He said, who are you? Too dark to see. She answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. First thing I notice here is that in verse 5, the passage we ended last week, Ruth's response was, all that you say I'll do. But then in verse 6, it tells us that she did in fact do all that Naomi had said. You know, sometimes it's one thing to say you'll do something, and it's another to do it. And she was as good as her word, which is a great reminder for us. Now, you know, again, this is an odd situation, isn't it? I mean, she's sneaking up on this guy in the dark and covering, uncovering his feet to pull his cloak or garment, whatever he's got covering up, and lie under it. I mean, this is an odd 
story by any means. But he wakes up, and you remember Naomi had said, he'll tell you what to do, but Ruth doesn't wait. She tells him why she's there. She says, spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. And in case you don't get it, this is a proposal of marriage. She's saying, Boaz, marry me. And this is good. Spread your covering over your maid. I mean, this is, uh, this is an idiom. It's a phrase. It goes back, though, to Ruth 2, verse 12. Listen to what Boaz had said in Ruth 2. When he meets Ruth and has heard about her, and he, she's now in his field gleaning, Boaz says this, May the Lord, may Yahweh reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings... You have come to seek refuge. The Hebrew for wings is kanaf, which is the same for covering. This is another instance in the story in which Boaz, or someone in the story, has blessed someone in God's name, and then they become the conduit for the blessing. Well, Boaz had said, You've sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh. And she says to Boaz, You spread your wing, your covering, over me. She's in effect asking Boaz to be the means of his own prayer being answered. This is great. I don't know if she's thinking about that when she'd spoken in the field and those were his words, but these become her words now. I can't help but think Boaz is thinking, gosh, that's what I prayed and she's asking me to do it. He's becoming the means or the method of God answering his own prayer. So Ruth is bold, she wastes no time, and she asks him to marry him. Now she says there in verse 6, Spread your covering over your maid, marry me, for you are a close relative. Uh, Relative, the term relative is used in New American Standard. Uh, Your versions may may vary on this. I don't know what NIV translates this. I think King James uses the term uh, kinsman and redeemer. There's a couple different Hebrew words that are, that are translated relative, and I'll just stick with the use of that term. Uh, one is mudaoth, and that just means a relative in general. And that's used of Boaz and Naomi and others in this story throughout at various parts. Mudaoth, it's just a relative. The term she uses, though, there in verse 6, you are a close relative, New American Standards rendering, is depending on the transliteration of the Hebrew, it's either ga'al or it's go'el. You're not just a relative. You're a, King James Version, kinsman redeemer. You're a close relative. You're a relative who, as far as the law of Moses is concerned, is in close enough proximity to redeem me. We'll get into this a little later. I'm actually waiting until chapter 4 to explain the law's provision. But she proposes marriage, then explains it by saying, because you are a kinsman, redeemer, a close relative. Somehow, we don't know specifically how, and the text does not tell us, Boaz is related to Naomi, and therefore, by marriage, to Ruth. And again, we'll follow this up later, but the law makes provision for one relative to redeem, to provide for the needs for another relative when that need arose. And the death of a husband was one of those needs. Lots of people could be a mataoth, a relative, but only one could in fact be 
the kinsman redeemer, the close relative. So Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her with the provision based on the law, with the thought that the marriage to Boaz isn't just going to provide for Ruth's needs, and we'll see this here again in just a second, but the marriage, this is for purpose, uh, providing for widows' needs was not a small issue and not a small uh, or worthy thing to take care of, but the needs or the considerations were bigger than that. This marriage would mean that a widow was taken care of, and in this case, actually, two widows, but it would also mean that Malon the son of Elimelech, both of whom had died, would gain an heir, Lord willing, through this new marriage, and so their family name would not perish in Israel. In fact, when we look at the law later, we'll see that's one of the key provisions. Remember that for Israel under the law to be in the land with descendants after you, taking over your possession, that was blessing. And so Ruth's Proposal of marriage doesn't just provide for her needs or Naomi's. It is a means of extending a family name, Elimelech's and Malon's, into Israel in the future. And Boaz understands that based on his words here later. And I love this that, uh, think about this for a second too. Think of the personalities we've got involved in this story. You've got this old bachelor, Boaz. And then you've got Naomi, an older, widowed Jewish woman. And then you've got Ruth, this younger, Moabite, widowed, pagan woman. This is an odd collection of people. But in Ruth's proposal, if this thing carries through, in Ruth's proposal, the broken pieces of several lives can be glued back together. And God can, in essence, take this, these separate entities and put them together, an older middle-aged guy, an older widow, and a young widow, and he can glue them into one family unit. We see a lot of this going on today, don't we? But this is God putting various components of broken families together into one new family. Her proposal of marriage doesn't, again, it doesn't just provide for her needs and Naomi's needs, It makes a new family out of these broken pieces. It puts the glue on these broken pieces, sticks them back together. This sounds like God's at work, doesn't it? Boaz uh, is startled. He finds out who's at his feet, and he gets this bold proposal of marriage. And Ruth says, because you're, you're a close relative, you're a kinsman redeemer. He said, may you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter, You've shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. I think Boaz's thought is this. If Ruth just wanted to get married for her own desires and needs, she could chase after anyone she wanted to. She could chase after the good-looking, younger, strong, strapping guys working with her in the field if she just wanted to get married. He seems to imply here that her first kindness was coming back with Naomi and helping take care of her needs and her kindnesses to her husband and her father-in-law before they died. But apparently when he says your second kindness, your last kindness is better than the first, he appears to be saying, I realize that in coming to me, you're not just trying to make uh, provision for your own desires or needs. 
you're trying to honor your mother-in-law, you're trying to provide an heir for your dead husband and your dead father-in-law. So that if all she was interested in was marriage, she doesn't have to come to him. But in coming to him, he understands that her excellence is shining through again because her proposal of marriage does not, in this case, primarily serve her own needs. It appears to be Ruth's way of seeking to meet the needs of her mother-in-law and her deceased husband and father-in-law. So he says, your second kindness, you were kind enough to begin with. You've supported Naomi. You were kind to your husband and to your father-in-law. You've come back with a woman to a foreign land. That was great kindness. He says, this is even better. You're still, you're looking out to provide for the needs of your mother-in-law and even beyond that to those who've already died. So uh, her stock in Boaz's mind just continues to rise the, the more he gets to know her. He says, now my daughter, don't fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, when he says, I'll do whatever you ask, this is almost the same phrase that Ruth had said to Naomi. Whatever you say, I'll do. Boaz has the same response. Whatever you say, I'll do it. And I love the reason why he's free to say this. He says, for, there in verse 11, whatever you ask, for, we could translate this, because... All the people in the city, this is the city gate, know that you are a woman of excellence. You're a woman of excellence. Ruth's character and personal personal qualities are known by all around her. Her return with Naomi, her work in the field, etc. The kind of person she is, is known. And because of that, Boaz says, Ruth, don't have no fear. Your excellence is already known. Everyone knows what kind of a person you are, so there's nothing that would hinder me from being free to say yes to anything you request. When she makes the request, it's her own reputation based on her own character, acts, and decisions that leaves Boaz free to become part of the solution, or at this point at least to to attempt to be part of her solution. It was her character. It was her moral excellence that let him say, there's there's nothing that would keep me from being able to be a part of this solution or pursuing you in this manner. Uh, Reputation's a big thing, and I think Stan may teach on that later this summer. I think that was the topic. You know, we are called, Old or New Testament, we are called to be God-pleasers, not pleasers of men. In other words, it's a sin when we try to seek the approval of people instead of God. But, in general, the reputation you and I have is based on the choices we make and the people we're becoming. So, reputation is an important thing. In fact, in the qualifications for elders, leaders in the church, a good reputation with those outside the church is a requirement. Now, reputations can be misleading. Someone may have a reputation for one thing because they're devious deceitful, etc. I mean, you and I will meet people like that. You've gotten to know them, no doubt, in the past, as I have. Reputation is not 100%, but reputation is normally a pretty good indicator of what someone's like and who they really are. And Ruth's character has given her a sterling reputation. 
And her reputation is, in fact, based on what's true about her. And everything that people have come to know about her is excellent. It's excellent. So that there's nothing that impedes Boaz from saying, no problem, we can do this. There's nothing in her life that would have kept Boaz from from having to say, I'm sorry, but I can't. It wouldn't be wise. Or, because of your reputation, I am unable to do that. You know, this makes me ask for myself and for all of us, what's your reputation? Now, again, we don't live to develop a public reputation. But in general, our reputation is based on the choices we make, the things we do, and the things we say. So that if you take a straw poll about those who know you, what would they say is known about you? What's your reputation? What are you known by? What are you characterized by? Do you have an excellent reputation? Are you known for moral excellence, as Ruth was? This is a big thing. This is a big thing. And again, not 100%, but in general, a pretty good indicator of who we are and where we're at. What do other people think of us? What do they know of us based on our decisions and seeing us over time? Ruth's reputation was excellent. And that should be the goal for you and I as well. Are people free to trust you and I? Does your reputation impede other people blessing you or being a part of your life or welcoming you into fellowship or ministry or anything else? What is your reputation of such that it does not impede God's will for your life or other people's relationship with you in fellowship or ministry? Reputation is an important thing. And Ruth had good reputation in spades. And it was an accurate indication of the kind of person she was. He tells her while he's glad to do anything she asks, verse 12, by the way, it is true I'm a close relative. This is true and it's a good thing you've come to me, but I am not the closest. There is a relative closer than I. Ruth, great, sounds good, but one hitch, I cannot just choose to redeem you because someone else has the closer relationship than I do And the right slash obligation falls to them first. So I'm glad you've come. I'll do what I can. But I'm not the first one to have a say in this. Someone else is. So he says, remain this night. When morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. Now, Boaz isn't saying better him than me. He's saying you would be redeemed Malon and Elimelech would have a male heir. Your needs would be provided for and Naomi's would and that would all be a positive thing, a good thing. He's not saying he doesn't want to marry her, but he's saying that would be good. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord or as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. I have no doubt that it's dark and he doesn't want her to trip or lose her way in the dark of night before she leaves. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one person could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. I don't want to go too far into this, but uh, commentators agree that the use of terms like uncovering and feet would have been understood by the Jewish audience to be double entendres 
of sexual references. And I won't go into this too much. I found it uh, surprising. And I had to look up all the references to make sure these guys knew what they were talking about. But they did. That when the Jewish audience heard this thing about uncovering Boaz and taking up a position at his feet, there, there is the inference of sexual tension into the story now. And here's this man and this woman with uncovering going on in the dark, by themselves, alone, and the audience is wondering, will our hero and will our heroine stay true? Will they do the right thing? Will they capitulate? What will they do in the dark of night when no one's watching? And this gets to character, not just reputation. What will they do in the dark when no one's watching? Hurrah, this tension doesn't last long, does it? Because the story, this part of the story concludes almost as soon as it begins, and it says they get up. And Boaz says, you know, wait until it's a little lighter to see your way home, and then go home. Uh, The important thing for us here, I think, is there was absolutely no inappropriate contact between Boaz and Ruth. They kept their conduct upright and pure, and in fact, you see Boaz's concern for Ruth's reputation when he says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. The Jewish audience knows uh, there's a question raised about what they'll do just based on the uh, double meaning of these terms. And they do nothing. And in fact, it says Boaz protects Ruth's reputation because it would be possible to misread her presence here at night in the dark alone with Boaz. This This doesn't look good, does it? So Boaz is concerned with her reputation. Beyond that, he knows that someone else has a claim before he does on Ruth as a bride. So my assumption is he's not only looking out for the good reputation and the welfare of Ruth, he also knows that this woman that he would probably love to marry may end up being the wife of someone else. He doesn't know at this point. He protects the interests of his relative also by doing nothing inappropriate. By protecting Ruth's reputation, he was also protecting the ability of the other kinsmen to redeem her. So you see nothing but mutual care. In fact, it might be, we speculated before, why did uh, Ruth and Naomi, why the plan to go to him at night in the dark One of the things may be that they were protecting Boaz's ability to say thanks but no thanks without anyone ever knowing that the the question had been raised. So you see this mutual care of these folks for each other. Ruth protects Boaz's ability to say no thanks. She does this alone in the dark. Boaz protects her reputation by saying to those who may have seen her leave there as the dawn is starting, don't let anyone know she was here protecting the rights of the first kinsman redeemer to take Ruth as a bride without thought that now her reputation is tarnished because she's been seen by Bo- with Boaz alone at night. You know, one of the things I sure come away thinking about this is whether you're an uh, older adult or a younger adult, if you're not married, uh, these lessons are, to me, excruciatingly clear. And that is... 
don't behave with someone you're not married to as if you are. There's, this, there's a huge issue here related to defrauding other people and also dishonoring God. You know, sex is a great thing, and it's God's idea. It's not a dirty thing that you keep in the dark. Sex is God's idea, and so this is all upside. But he's put it within the fences of marriage. And, of course, one of the great temptations to all of us as we grow into young adults and older adults, and especially if we're not married, it's to want to get into that good thing God's provided, but outside the means by which he's provided it. And you know, whether you're young or old, if you're seeing someone and you have affection for a member of the opposite sex and you're wondering where this thing might go, you know, until you're hitched and on your honeymoon, you should not be initiating any kind of physical contact or emotional attachment that is supposed to go with marriage. Because if you do, you can defraud that other person. And you're dishonoring God by taking something that he's, re, he's keeping on a, on a tall shelf that you only get a certain way. He's keeping it there, and he wants you to keep it there. And think of this, too. There's lots of books written about this, and if you're homeschoolers and others, uh, I can't remember the titles of any of these now, but whether you date, whether you court, I don't care, whatever you call it, when you're seeing someone of the opposite sex, you need to be thinking about Ruth and Boaz. Nothing inappropriate. They did nothing towards or with each other that would have impugned their characters or kept them from being free to marry someone else with no tarnish. And think, think of this. You know, somebody says, uh, uh, we know a couple. The guy, they dated for a long time. The guy never kissed her. She thought he didn't like her. And it wasn't until he proposed to her that he kissed her. And she asked him what the deal was. And he said, I didn't want to kiss someone else's girl. In other words, I didn't want to kiss a woman who would end up being someone else's wife. And for you, not me, but for you, any of the unmarrieds in our midst, for you as an individual, the question is, Am I kissing, am I embracing in an inappropriate manner someone else's future spouse, male or female? Here's another question for you. Is someone else embracing or kissing inappropriately my future spouse? Is my future spouse being inappropriate? Cuts both ways, cuts both ways yeah. But in this window we've got if they were going to do something wrong they had the opportunity and in fact this part of the story it's dark and it doesn't even actually name them by name in the darkness of night you just got this man and you just got this woman and they're alone in the dark and they're uncovering nothing happens they actually are looking out for each other's reputations they are doing absolutely nothing inappropriate and this is just, this is great advice, great counsel. You know, we've told our girls, have all the friends you want. Don't get hooked up with someone that it doesn't look like God's leading you to marry in a way that entangles you. That complicates life, I'll tell you. Complicates things. It's a big complication. 
But you know, when you have this sense that God's calling you to marriage, well, then you, you go slowly or, or quickly from one step to another and you get married. But our culture is so big. Sex is such a big thing. Boy, boyfriends and girlfriends is such a big thing. Guys, this is loaded with trouble. Absolutely loaded. This is a Pandora's box. And Ruth and Boaz lead the way in being a great example for any of us. Save the intimacy, emotional and physical, for marriage. Once you get married, you got it for the rest of your life. And if you don't, for you, it's inappropriate and it's wrong. God's not giving it to you. Don't take it. Keep yourself pure. Protect the reputation of others. Make sure you're not being inappropriate with someone else's future spouse. And pray they're not being inappropriate with someone else with your spouse, vice versa. But this is just a great example. Reputation, what they could see outside, character displayed here in the dark, absolutely nothing inappropriate. Looking out for each other's best interests and actually the best interest of a person who will never be named in the story, this nameless other kinsman redeemer. Boaz is looking out for his interest as well. He says at the break of day, as Ruth's getting ready to leave, Give me the cloak that's on you and hold it. So she held it. He measured six measures of barley and laid it on her, and she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Don't go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. This is one shrewd guy, isn't it? By the way, make sure your mom knows, mother-in-law knows that I gave you some stuff to bring home. And she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. And I assume that Naomi knows Boaz and that he's a man of action and that there will be no waiting on this thing. He's going to take care of business today. And in chapter 4, of course, we'll see that. But he's going to find out. Ruth won't have to wait. The kinsman redeemer won't have to wait. Everybody will know today the dust will be settled on this thing. We'll know whose wedding it's going to be. Well, you know, on Father's Day, we could do a lot worse and look a lot farther and harder for a great example of a father than Boaz, who has certainly become my hero in this story. Look, look at just his characteristics that we've already seen. He blesses those who work for him. He, he blesses those who serve him. I mean, people at one level that he doesn't owe anything to except a day's wage. He blesses. He's considerate of others and generous. We talked about this before with Boaz as the portrait of a good or godly man. He's willing to be the answer to the needs and prayers of others. He was before in providing for her needs physically in the grain. Now he's willing to do that in marriage. He cares for those who are in real need. And you remember James says this is true in undefiled religion, to look out for widows and orphans, those who really are in need. And in today's sequence, we see that he is careful of the interests and the reputations of others. He's living in such a way that he's a blessing and not not a curse to anyone around him. And you know, as dads, you've got this great ability, the hardest job you'll ever love. You've got this great ability to influence other people for the rest of their life. I know every one of us has a dad. Uh, living or deceased, every one of us has a dad, and we can think back and remember the impact they had on us. In fact, statistically, 
fathers, as, as great as mothering is, and as, as big a job as it is, the facts are that statistically, if you do any research, check any of the research on this, children tend to follow the lead of their fathers, not their mothers. In households in which uh, dad goes to church and mom doesn't, most of the kids will grow up to go to church. In households where mom goes to church and dad doesn't, most of the kids will grow up to not go to church. This, these are just statistics based on studies that have been done. Dads have this huge ability to influence. And when you think about it, the domino effect, one person you influence as a dad, one person you influence your child, your child grows up, or children, they get married or have children, they're influencing their descendants, and, and by the way, they're influencing those around them too. So that your influence as a dad, just like Boaz is here, and this is interesting, isn't it? Think about Boaz's influence. He was an influence in his world. And Jesus never got married, but he has spiritual children. If Boaz had never become married and never had children, he still would have been a blessing to those around him and a positive influence in Israel. And God still would have used him. But he does get him married. And Boaz becomes in this line of Jesus' lineage. Boaz becomes a blessing inestimably. He couldn't fathom how God would use his character and his person to become a husband and a father and influence a child and a grandson and a great-grandson who becomes king of Israel, whose great descendant becomes king of the world. So the influence Boaz has or the influence any of us have as dads is just, it's huge. And we can sure look to Boaz as simply a great reminder of the kind of qualities we want to have, the kind of reputation we want to have, the kind of character we want to have, so that we're a blessing, dads, to our wives and our kids, those around us. It's interesting that even before the wedding and before any children are born, we know Boaz is going to make a great dad, don't we? And God entrusts his son's lineage into the hands of Boaz. There's some other characters in his lineage that are Less sterling, certainly. Uh, But in this case, God entrusts the lineage of his son in the future to a sterling character in the person of Boaz. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just struck again by how brightly Boaz and Ruth shine in this story and in the dark, dark days of the period of the Judges. And Father, in so many ways, the culture we live in is blessed materially, We have great wealth, but spiritually, Lord, the days we live in are probably not much different than the days this story took place in. Spiritually dark, people far, far from you, Lord, pursuing anything and everything under the sun except you. And we've got this great reminder that you're still at work and that those folks who call on your name as Ruth did who walk after you as Boaz did, they're still those folks that you pick up and use as your instruments. And Father, may we be as husbands and wives, as moms and dads, as young adults and children. Lord, may our story shine as brightly as Ruth and Boaz do in this story. Might we enjoy, Lord, a sterling reputation with those outside because of a sterling character on the inside. I'm 
just blown away and, and encouraged, Lord, and challenged by these two great characters. Lord, ultimately they display your character, Christ-likeness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Father, for all of us, whatever our station or calling in life, fill us with more of your Spirit. Let the Spirit that was in Boaz and Ruth, that has been fully manifested in the person of your beloved Son, Jesus, let that same Spirit, that same character, live fully and shine brightly in us. In Jesus' name, amen.